Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. And I'll remind us that there's a speaker in the back and a speaker downstairs. Um, if you need to remove your child until they quiet and come back for the sake of uh, us all being able to hear, uh, that'd be wonderful. <clears throat> I think it's functioning, the speaker in the back, is that right? And downstairs, I think so. Yeah, so please be aware of that. Let's pray before we, before we hear the Lord's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon uh, the reading, the reception of the preaching and the red word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you that you have come to us in the power of your Holy Spirit that enabled us to praise you and to give ourselves to you. And we do pray now as we seek your face and your word and seek to listen to the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that, we would, uh, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us afresh. And that we may not merely come as tasters, but as children who are hungry and long to be fed upon every word that you say to us. We pray, Lord, for grace, that we may sit under your word, that we may listen to your voice, that it would break through our callous hearts. And by your gracious love, transform us into the likeness of Jesus, our Savior. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would, by your word and through your spirit, do us good as we come for your counsel and for your presence. We pray, minister to us according to the wide variety of our needs. But bring every one of us, we pray, dear Lord, to see that you have provided all that we need in Jesus Christ, that we may come to him and find our all in him. And we pray this for his glory and for our good, in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Luke chapter 23, I'll be reading verses 13 to 25. 13 to 25, please give your full attention. This is the word of God. Luke 23, starting at verse 13. <clears throat> Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find, any, did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So for the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
as we bridge into this new year, the ending of one and the beginning of the next, uh, this week and next week, I wanted to visit um, a most glorious topic. Right? We've just been working through the Advents, Advent hymns of Luke uh, in the Gospel of Luke, the beginning, um, heaven's outpouring of new songs at the coming of God in the flesh, the incarnation. Um, now we're going to look at the other end of that life, or rather Christ's final chapter leading to the cross, his sin-defeating death, that one life for those who believe in him, who trust in him for salvation. <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at what we confess very often uh, in the creed in the course of our worship, course of our liturgy, when we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Right? We say that in the creed as we recite the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> We've been in Luke. Uh, now we pick up uh, in Luke's Gospel later. Jesus has been betrayed and arrested. He had been denied by the Apostle Peter, you'll recall. He was mocked and beat by those who were holding him. And Jesus had been brought before the council who sought to destroy him. And they brought Jesus before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and he is accused by this crowd. And Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, but sends him to Herod, where he is questioned and beaten again, and then sent back to Pilate, an innocent man. And we pick up in Luke 23, chapter 13, back with Pilate and Pilate's problem. Pilate's problem. Pilate is in a predicament. He's in a dilemma. And that main all-important question and problem for Pilate is, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with this man? And that's a question for all people, right? Even for us, even today, what do we do with Jesus? Will we embrace him as the perfect, spotless, innocent that he was? Or will we try to be rid of him and push him away like Pilate did and wash our hands of him? We'll look at this morning at just that Pilate's problem and then our predicament. And then finally, this precious picture of the gospel. Pilate's problem, our predicament, and then this glorious, precious picture of the gospel that we see in this narrative. <clears throat> the problem of Pilate and Jesus and the people is still unresolved at this point. This is the second time that Jesus is before Pilate, and there's still no resolution. Uh, the prisoner, Jesus, is back, and the crowd was growing. And Pilate offers this fix, this unjust fix, to just punish and release him, to appease the crowd. And we read in Luke, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. And we hear for the first time a reference to the people here, right? The people, right? It's, he called the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And we see that they, together with the, other, with the other two, the chief priests and the rulers, drive Pilate's decision. Pilate here appeals to the people, thinking that he can depend on them and their response and that it will be reasonable. He concludes that Jesus, that Christ is innocent, as did Herod, and he assumes that he can appease the rulers and the people by throwing them a bone, by punishing Christ and releasing him. That'll take care of his problem. 
and appease them, right? That way the people get Christ punished and Pilate gets to let him go, right? As if this was just in his mind. And according to Pilate and Herod, he was innocent and undeserving of the death penalty. And Luke carefully includes this data. He includes this information in his gospel. <clears throat> Later, the apostle Peter says the same in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says this, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, without blemish or spot. And so Pilate's problem is that the people... Right? Christ's enemies, those clamoring for him, wouldn't accept his verdict, even though it was true. And Pilate, the politician, suggests, suggests this solution. Punish and release him. And this is not unusual for the time. Right? This was a practice of the Romans uh, and others at times. Uh, remember later in Acts, we read about something similar. When the apostles, you'll recall, are arrested and they're charged for preaching and teaching about Jesus. They don't like that. And the chief priests and the council are outraged and they wanted to kill the apostles because they wouldn't stop and they wouldn't listen to them over and against the command of the Lord. And there we are told, uh, they were told, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And the apostles said what? Remember, we must obey God rather than man. Right? A good practice, a good thing to keep in mind. We must obey God rather than men. And we read that when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to destroy. They wanted to kill them. But remember, a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel advised them not to kill him, right? In Acts 5.40, says this, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go, right? They punished and released him. And so the Romans, uh, as a warning and as a reminder, would beat their prisoners, but in the case of Jesus, it was entirely unjust, entirely unjust. He was innocent and he was rightly judged, so by Pilate and Herod, right, not guilty. And Pilate ends up doing what was best for Pilate, right, the politician, uh, rather than what was right and true and just. And as Pilate weaseled and compromised, the people could taste Pilate's weakness and they drive his decision. They knew he would fold as they persisted. And as they pressured him, and Pilate's problem persisted, and the crowd hectored him and shouted him down in response to all of his suggestions and his efforts to let Jesus go. And we read in Mark's account, the Gospel of Mark, we're told that it was customary for the governor, Mark tells us, to release a prisoner of their asking at Passover, at the time of Passover. And of course, Pilate hoped that they would ask for Jesus to be released. He's told them that he was innocent. This would solve the problem. But this is the last thing that the people wanted and the chief priests wanted. It's the last thing they wanted. In their rage and in their hate, they were blinded and only saw their own verdict of his guilt and their hatred towards him. And they asked for an entirely different person. Right? Remember what it says in verse 18 to 19 of Luke 23. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. 
Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. <clears throat> and do you see the irony and the hypocrisy here of what's going on? As we look at the big picture, as we look at the big uh, points here, Barabbas really was guilty of his crimes. And those actually committed crimes were the accusations that they were accusing Jesus of. Right? The claim was that Jesus was trying to what? To overthrow the political authorities, overthrow the government. But notice it's the priests yelling and refusing the will of whom? Of the political authority, of Pilate. They're actually refusing to obey that authority, the government, as Pilate stands for it. And even more backwards, they're screaming that a known political disruptor and murderer, they're demanding and yelling for his release, a man they know is guilty. And this is extremely shocking as well. When we look at this and we look at John's account of this very same thing and see something that would have horrified a faithful covenant Israelite, an Israelite who knew his scriptures. Because Yahweh was their king, right? Yahweh was their king. Or Yahweh's appointed vice regent in his place. But notice, horrifyingly, what happened? In, in John 19, we read this. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Yahweh and Yahweh alone was to be their king, or the one that was installed by Yahweh to rule for him. Not a pagan, not a foreign king, not ever. And the chief priests cry, we have no king but Caesar. And this further illustrates the extent that they had fallen away from the Lord Pilate again wanted to get Jesus released. And he appeals to them again in verse 20 of Luke 23. And he says, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Yet again, they refused and they called directly for blood. Verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Pilate preferred to let Jesus go free. They wanted Jesus dead. And they are chanting for his death. And they're demanding that he be executed How? in a manner that's been described as not only the most painful, but the most ignominious and disgraceful death that a person ever could receive, right? Crucifixion. Pilate's problem persisted. It wouldn't go away. And Pilate has another run at them, and it repeats his earlier suggestion from verse 16. And verse 22 says, the third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. This was Pilate's repeated declaration. Again, if we go back to verse 4, then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And then in our text today, you brought this man as one who's misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. In verse 15, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. 
And in all of this, Jesus is the only one that is guileless, the only one that is without evil. But the angry mob wanted him dead. And the angry mob succeeded in their demand to Pilate. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And it says, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Pilate's problem was going to turn into a riot, so he agrees to have this innocent man, Jesus, crucified. And this gross injustice unfolds. It takes place. And we know who the responsible party, the culpable party is here, or parties, rather. Luke, in part two of his writings, Acts, makes it clear that the people were responsible Act 2.23, this Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 3, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. And it was also the spiritual leaders who were responsible, who were culpable. Acts 4, when Peter said before the Sanhedrin, he says it is Jesus whom you crucified. And then in Acts 5, he said to them that it was written that it was them who killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. And not only the Jews, but it's the Romans, it's Pilate, it's Herod, it's Judas. And all of it really, if we step back and read again in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, remember... It says it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? So in, the, in a macro picture, none escape culpability. Right? He is broken for our iniquities. Satan desired defeat. But God's plan was to bring victory out of defeat according to what? To his definite plan and his foreknowledge. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what to do with Jesus? This was Pilate's problem, Pilate's predicament. He tried pretty hard to find a way to release Jesus, for Jesus to be freed, but he never did the one thing that Christ demands. He never believed in Christ for who he was. And like many people even today, Pilate believed that Jesus was an innocent man who was persecuted. Right? You may have heard this right, or read something like this. He was a historical figure He was mistreated. He was unfairly treated and persecuted. But people reject him as he demands to be taken, as their savior, as redeemer, as king, as sovereign. Pilate never resolved the problem. Faithlessly and cowardly, he sends Jesus to be crucified. Even you here this morning need to decide. What you will do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Have you trusted in him for your life, in faith, in confidence, and surrender to him as your Lord for your life? That's his call on your life. Every one of you. Accept him, believe him, trust in him. And that really is our predicament, right, as well. Not just Pilate. What will we do with Jesus Will we accept him for who he says he is? Our divine redeemer, Lord, God himself, or like Pilate, 
and so many others will we reject him and pretend he's something of our own making and hope he'll just go away so we can be rid of the problem of his confrontation. Because the reality is he's not going away. He's coming back. And so we better answer that question rightly, right? It's not only Pilate that needs to make this choice about Christ. And it really is a situation like no other. And this shows us something of the profound mystery of the higher ways of God, of Yahweh, the covenant Lord, right? Remember in Isaiah 55, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Right? Most of us, on the one hand, are rooting for Jesus, that he be released because he's innocent. And we want justice to prevail. But on the other hand, we know, we know that for our sins to be paid for, Jesus must be punished for them in our place. We are left acknowledging our sin and praising God that he has made a way gloriously. A beautiful and perfect way that satisfies both God's justice and his mercy and accomplishes his plan perfectly. Our Old Testament reading this morning, right? He was what? Wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Right? We are healed. And we certainly want justice and right the right to prevail. And ultimately, in God's design, that's exactly what happens. That's precisely what happens. All right, look again at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? And see, it's, part, it's, part, it's, it's God's plan unfolding. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right? Sinners commit sin, yes. They are responsible, culpable for that sin, yes. And that's why in verse 38 of the same chapter, Peter tells them to repent when they ask, what shall we do? He says, repent. Why? Because you're guilty. And why? All of this why? Why did God do this? Right? What is accomplished by this? grand plan of the Lord, of God. Verse 24 tells us, Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. The New American Standard actually says it better. God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death. That's the purpose, that's the point. The defeat of death itself. That was God's greater purpose in it all, in the gospel. And this is like what happened to Joseph, remember, in Genesis Joseph and his brothers and the wickedness that they committed against him when it all came to a head in Genesis 50 and the brothers are terrified that Joseph now the number two power in Egypt would bring revenge upon them and in their terror what does Joseph say to them do you remember Genesis 50 20 he says of all that they've done to him he says you meant it you meant evil against me but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's greater purpose and plan, even through the wickedness of sinful men. And we see in the New Testament, 
that while wickedness, that wickedness that submerges Jesus is wickedness, and those who did it are culpable, God's definite plan was greater, was greater. And he accomplishes through that the very thing that rebellious, sinful sons of Adam need. The very thing. And praise God, brothers and sisters, that if we are his, there remains no condemnation for us. No condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It's all been paid. And that's a glorious promise to remind ourselves of. And then in Luke 23, 25, it says, He, Pilate, released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will, to their will. And it's probably not extremely hard to see as we look at this. It's probably evident that God's plan was over and above man's plan or Satan's plan. But sometimes it's very hard, right? We see that and we read it and we grasp it. It's rather clear. But sometimes it's very hard for us I don't think I'm the only one to see God's sovereign, overriding, perfect plan in the closeness of our own lives. Whether it's a, a medical debil debilitation or an illness or relational mess, relational hurt and sorrows or whatever it is. Why, we might say. We might ask, why? Why do I have to hurt? When will it stop? Hasn't it been long enough, Lord? I'm pretty good. Right? Can it just stop? Can it just be over? We must remember, brothers and sisters, that God's sovereignty extends to all things. To all things. And we must remember that nothing comes to us but by his loving hand. There are no stray elements in this world that kind of... Everything that comes to us is but by his, through his loving hands. And maybe it's that very thing that he's using to bring us closer to him and to be more dependent upon him, to learn to love him and to lean on him and to live in him and to realize our need and our dependence on him. And to remember that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Right? We must get that. Romans 8, 28. I'm sure many of you have that memorized. We must get it, but we must remember what it's saying. It's not saying all things work together for our comfort or for our ease or for our pleasure, but for our good, for our good. And he uses, the Lord uses the means of grace to shape us, word, sacrament, and prayer. And he also uses the circumstances of our lives that he brings into our lives to shape us. And we must remember the following verse. We just read Romans 8, 28. We must remember Romans 8, 29. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, of his son. And he continues to shape us, brothers, continues to shape us. And as was the pattern of our Lord, suffering and then glory, our lives will follow that pattern as he conforms us into the image of his son. And he tunes us and he readies us 
for glory. And he continues to shape us and tune our lives, brothers and sisters. And so we must practice the reflex of acknowledging in all things his love, his care, his shaping, and thank him for it. Because by doing so, he is accomplishing his will to conform you into the image of your glorious Savior, Jesus. And that's an incredible thing, is it not? And so now let's look as we close for a moment at this precious picture that I mentioned um, to start, this precious picture that we're given in this text. We may miss things like this. They're so obvious that we just look right through them. But in the staggering history that we're reading in our text this morning, we have God's plan unfolding. And if we look, we see this most precious picture of the very precious gospel itself. Even right there in the trial before us, there's this picture of the great gospel truth. And I'm speaking, of course, of the prisoner, the murderer, the insurrectionist, Barabbas. Barabbas. Have you considered this? Right? Again, this man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Barabbas was the opposite of Jesus. Barabbas was in prison for crimes that he actually committed. Jesus committed no crime. And earlier we read in what Peter said in Acts, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Barabbas was a sinner. He was a sinner. Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained by his, by his sin nature or actual sin. He was the son of God, the perfect spotless lamb. And a friend of mine reminded me that even the name Barabbas, is, Barabbas, the name in Hebrew means son of the father. Barabbas, the son of the father. But Jesus, you'll recall, is the monogenes, right? You remember the word in Greek? Monogenes, the one and only son of the father. Barabbas' father must be referring to the devil himself, right? And we read in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. But notice the picture in this incident with Barabbas. Notice the precious picture. It's a picture of you and a picture of me. Right? A guilty, condemned rebel, truly at fault and deserving punishment, is freed and released. Right? And another, undeserving and innocent, without guilt and without crime, is punished and condemned in his place. Right? We are Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are all those things that Jesus is not. We are sinful. We are guilty, imprisoned by our guilt and our sin. Not merely because of the sin nature that we inherited from our first father, Adam, but from our own sins. We have an account of sin's debt piled inescapably high. And therefore, we have God's just wrath against us. But like Barabbas, we are set free. We are set free by the work of the Lord, by the giving of faith in Jesus and that's the glorious exchange, right? That glorious exchange. The heart and core and roots of all that is important and all that brings us life. It's one of the most precious declarations in Scripture. One of my favorite verses, as you who know me know, because it's not just abstract, ethereal theology. It's life, because true theology is life, right? What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the very righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect life. He kept the law perfectly, thus keeping the covenant of works that Adam failed, that Israel failed, that everyone failed before him. And he did so for us. He did it for you and did it for me, for all who call on him for life. And what's more, he suffered our punishment for breaking that covenant in his own person to the point of death. And he did it for you and did it for me, for all who call on his name for life. He lived and he died for you who love and trust in him. Barabbas pictures that in that an exchange took place. An innocent man who was condemned to die while a guilty man is set free. And do you see it? Do you see that? It's altogether glorious. It's a precious picture of our salvation. Right? Our salvation. Now we have no reason to believe that this Barabbas placed his faith in Christ for life. We don't know that. But the pardon of Barabbas pictures God's grace for us in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And like Barabbas, we were destined to die, condemned in our sins. But a glorious change has occurred, exchange has occurred, where Jesus takes our place so we can take his and have life. The holy, righteous one is condemned to die in our place. He is condemned to suffer the wrath of God, and he does so on the cross, and sovereignly and gloriously. That death on the cross is also our justification. His condemnation is our pardon. His bondage is our release. His dying in our place as our substitute, suffering the death that we deserve to die, that is the gospel. And that is why you have life if you trust in him. And like it did Barabbas, the good news that he heard, the gospel, the good news comes to us while on death row. We are condemned to eternal punishment when that glorious and wonderful declaration and invitation comes to us in the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved. All who entrust themselves upon the Lord will have life, will have life. And so what will you do with this Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Will you ignore him? Will you try and drive him away or pretend he doesn't exist? Or will you embrace him and accept the offer of eternal life and the exchange of his life for your death? What a glorious Savior we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a precious picture we're given in this text in Luke. What a glorious exchange that we have, his life for ours. Your Savior indeed suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. And he was so for all those whom the Father gave him. And in doing so, he accomplished their redemption and secured for certain their life in heaven and a new heart that beats for him. And we'll look at the last part of that, the glorious resurrection, more next week. But for now, as you leave this place and descend back down from spiritual Zion in worship, back into your pilgrim lives, let us never forget, dear Christian, never forget the extent that Jesus our Lord went in order to secure your life forever with him, in him. 
And let us never forget his very real suffering and the very real beatings that he underwent, fist and bone against flesh, real blood spilled, a very real cross made of real wood and very real nails and a spear in his side. He suffered in your place, dear Christian. He suffered in your place. He died so that you would have life. Have life and have it abundantly. Not only in the next life, but in this life. As he carries you through this life. And we can rejoice, even in the sufferings that we go through. Because we know who we belong to. We know who our Savior is. And we rejoice. And let us never forget, as well, that the Christ who was crucified was also the Christ who was resurrected on that third day. He was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Remember these things, brothers and sisters. Let us never forget. Remember, trust, and believe, and be conformed and be transformed. Jesus is your peace. He is your life. Let us praise and magnify his name, even as we long and grow and long to grow evermore in him, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for life in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that as, even as we are so dim at times and even as we are forgetful and foolish and feeble, Lord, we praise you that you are strong and that you remember and that you accomplish your will, your perfect will in our lives according to your plan. Lord, we pray, be with us. Help us to remember who we are in Christ, dead to sin and alive. Lord, I'd like to walk in newness of life. Help us to walk in that life. Help us to follow Christ. Lord, help us to long to live according to your will. Lord, help us to be the love of Christ, even to our neighbor. Lord, protect us, we pray. Be with us for the remainder of the service. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me now in our congregational prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, our God, you are our creator. We are your people. You have uh, given us life and given us um, time to, to grow, to develop, to uh, grow in our understanding um, through the revelation you give us, to grow in our um, comprehension of your glory. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith, um, draw us um, near to our Savior, um, draw us near to the gospel each time we hear it, um, we understand it, and we, we live in it, and we progress. We pray that <clears throat> you would um, build us up as individuals, build us up as, as uh, a body of believers, help us to encourage one another, Help us to uh, walk in unity and to walk in, in love and care for one another. <clears throat> Thank you for putting us in a, uh, this family we call our local church and in the, the greater family of the, uh, um, the church worldwide. We pray that um, those in our uh, personal families, um, our, those in whom we are in relationship, our uh, spouses, our children, uh, Lord, that you would uh, 
Help us to uh, walk in, in wisdom and knowledge to perform the duties that, that are required of us in each of these relationships. Make us good fathers and mothers. Make us obedient parents, or obedient children to our parents. Help us, Lord, um, help those in our families who um, have strayed. By your spirit, Lord, reach out to them through the, uh, the power of your gospel. Change their hearts. Uh, we pray for those among us who are uh, suffering physically, um, whether from, from time to time or recurring. Lord, uh, grant comfort, grant um, medical aid. We pray for our um, other needs, our creaturely needs. Uh, help each one to um, uh, have the uh, the wherewithal, Lord, to uh, to have their needs met for uh, um, finances. And um, we pray for uh, again our growth in in this kingdom. Um, you've given us life and everything alive is growing and changing and help us Lord uh, to grow and to change in a, a positive um, direction uh, in our grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus in whose name we pray Amen let's um, stand and sing right what is our next hymn here Our song of response, number 374. Let's stand and sing hymn number 374.
common faith as we um, use the words of the um, Apostles' Creed. It's found on eight, page 851 in the back of your hymnal. If you need to turn to that. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the